So if I were to ask for a raise, I would I would go to my my boss, my manager, and let's just assume you're my manager. So I'd say, hey, Garrett, I really want to talk about performance. I want to become a top performer at this company. What would that look like over the next three months if if I were to really be a top performer? Getting the confidence and going up and making the ask is usually the hardest aspect of all of this. Hey, investors, you are listening to the Investing to Win podcast the show dedicated to empowering investors to achieve financial freedom and live your best life. This show is committed to offering honest conversation between investors, common sense strategies, real-time market updates, and professional guidance to achieving financial freedom. Investing doesn't have to be super hands-on or complicated. We are all about passive investments with real gain, so you have freedom of time and money. Your host is none other than Garrett Wong, who brings decades of experience in buying, renovating, and managing cash flow investment properties. Thanks for being here and get ready to invest to win. Good afternoon, real estate investment community. My name is Garrett Wong and I'm your host of the Investing to Win podcast. Today, I actually have a fellow podcaster on. His name is Justin Peters. Justin, how are you? Uh, I'm doing great, Garrett. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm super excited about our conversation today. Yeah, likewise. Um, so a little bit of background. Uh, Justin reached out to me and thought it'd be really good collaboration to, uh, to, to talk about the topic we have today. Um, and before we get into that, I'd like to sort of find out a little bit more about you. I'm sure my audience would. Why don't you give us the, uh, the intro and the particulars? Sure. Um, I'll really kind of talk my, my money story, I think. I think that's probably where a lot of this conversation is going to go. So grew up uh, middle class, and I was blessed to have a dad that um, was very transparent about money and taught me a whole lot of things. He didn't grow up with a whole lot, so it was a goal of his to, to pass along to his kids and make sure we were financially savvy kids. So I knew a whole lot uh, by the, the ripe age of 18 about insurance, about budgeting, um, even a little bit of investing, although that wasn't necessarily his strong suit. He, he kind of hammered in. Uh, matching the 401k. I didn't learn a whole lot about the stock market or any other opportunities there, but he was great. Um, and I think my story gets really interesting. Uh, this was 2020 um, when I decided to leave my employer and take a sabbatical. I was in the same industry for um, going on almost a decade and just kind of felt flat, uninspired. It wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do next. And I got some great advice from somebody to, to take some time off, take a sabbatical. And with inside of that sabbatical, one thing they told me is to, to not spend the first half of your sabbatical thinking about what career path might be next for you, but instead invest into a project that you've always wanted to do, but you've never had time to do it because of work. And as soon as he told me this, I knew it was podcasting. I'd fall in love with the medium of podcasting a couple of years before that and realized I could be a creator in this space as well. So I launched The Struggle is Real and it's been going on now four years, uh, podcasting, talking about all things money for 20-somethings. Nice. Okay. Um, I've only been at this for a year, so uh, my hat's off to you because it's not <laughs> it's not easy. And as you, as our my audience knows, this is a passion project of mine as well. Um, so the struggle is real. I why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I, I think our listeners would uh, probably tune into that too. Yeah, I think it, it, it really stemmed out of Sunday conversations with my little brother. He's three years younger than I was. I was. Um, in my mid twenties at the time, he was just graduating college and he'd asked me all these life questions, you know, how do I get a job or how do I make friends or how these, all these things. And sometimes I would have 
answers for him because I maybe had just lived through that experience the last few years. Other times I'm like, I don't know, Kyle, making friends and staying on top of people is kind of hard sometimes. Let me see if I can go find someone else that might have a better answer for that. Uh, so the the genesis of the podcast was really those conversations with with my brother. Uh, and it morphed into to, um, honestly just advice for 20-somethings, kind of navigating this first early defining decade. And since then it's it's morphed into mostly money-focused uh, shows. I feel that is the one of the hardest elements of of your 20s is, is starting to master and get get a hand on your money. So I really love to dive into those topics. Perfect. Well, that is a great segue into this topic, uh, which is how to save enough money for the down payment of your first rental property. I know it's going to resonate with our listeners quite a bit uh, because when I bought my first rental property, that was kind of like, okay, that's great. I have the knowledge, I think, read a few books, but how do I start? So why don't you share a brief overview of why saving for a down payment is a crucial step uh, besides the obvious. Yeah. I mean, I, let's call out the obvious. I think the it's a major crucial step because if you don't have money to put down, you're probably not going to be able to buy the home. Most, even if you're getting a loan or uh, a lender is going to lend you money, they want you to have skin in the game, which is really what the purpose of a down payment is. They want you to be able to put down some of your money and then they'll lend you money on top of that. Uh, so without some kind of money, you're probably never even got to be able to convince a creditor to, to lend you some money to actually go ahead and buy your first home. So I think that's an important first piece to it, especially in the real estate investment aspect as well. It usually takes money to make money. And if you're struggling to save enough money, I, you're probably got to struggle later on in life whenever the the bills are kind of flowing out of your rental properties and you're, you're really um, getting hammered with some of this kind of stuff. If you're going to always be, um, you know, paying via credit card and carrying, you know, credit card debt or taking out outrageous own, uh, loans because you didn't put enough down, it, the ROI for these kind of real estate properties just aren't going to make sense for you. So, I mean, what you're talking about then are, are life skills. Definitely. Okay. Um, because I think this could apply to our listeners who might even be renting right now and are thinking of how do I get into my first home, never mind a rental property. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, why don't you sort of apply, I'm sure you've had some guests on, of what you would say to even how to, how to save for your first home. What are the different strategies that you might uh, entail? Yeah, I... Um for saving for a down payment, I always love shooting for the number of 20%. I don't, it, Garrett, is that the same in, in Canada too? Do you drop PMI whenever you hit 20%? It is. Well, there's a bunch of different rules. Uh, for a rental property, it's 20 or 25. Um, for first time, depending on the government's insurance, it's called CMHC. You might be able to get away with five if mm -hmm. it's your first time home, but let's just use 20 as a, a pretty much of a gold standard. Yeah. And I, I think 20% is is a good gold standard regardless uh, of some of these other factors. But here in the United States, it's a really great one because you don't pay something called PMI, uh, which is insurance on your mortgage. And the last thing you want to do is have to pay an additional cost on top of your mortgage that you're already paying a whole lot for. So that alone is, is a really great goal. And plus, just having that much equity and ownership into your home right from the get-go, I think is a really great idea. And is probably a good indicator for how much home you can actually afford because um, you don't want to overspend. Uh, and I, I think a good rule of thumb for that, if you're you know renting and or buying, is keeping your housing costs 30% of your total, total income or less. But if I were to break down this, so I'd start with the 20%. Um, so I think an average home in uh, Winnipeg is probably going around somewhere between like 
$340,000 if I, if I got my numbers right or, or not, yep, pretty uh, good. which roughly comes out to about 60 grand, uh, for a down payment. So that would be my goal ahead of time. I'd figure out how much money do I already have saved that I want to, that I want to allocate towards that, that savings rate. Let's say we already have $10,000 in some of our savings accounts or checking accounts that we want to allocate towards that. Okay. All of a sudden now I have 50 grand, uh, a 50 grand savings goal that I want to save for. And what realistically time horizon do I need in order to get to 50 grand? And if you start doing the numbers and you and your partner can both um, add to that, you know, add $1,000 to that account, $2,000 a month, um, okay, then it's got to take us 25 months or a little over two years to save for our down payment. So you can start doing the math and working the math. And if you get to that number and you're like, man, a little over two years, that's not really what I wanted. That's not what I was hoping for. I wanted to get my first rental property under my books by the end of next year. Maybe you're looking at 15 months or 12 months instead, you got to start crunching those numbers and realize, okay, can I realistically start saving $2,000, $3,000, $4,000 a month in order to fund my my down payment? Yeah. And I think for those listeners who are living, quote unquote, paycheck to paycheck, right? I mean, they're probably think, shaking their head going, I'm never going to be able to do that. <laughs> it's going to take me 10 years. But I mean, I was, I mean, I'm 52 now, but when I was younger, I went through those cycles of living off credit cards. You know, I had a house at the time, so I'd refi and I'd consolidate debt and think I was okay. And then all of a sudden the credit cards are creeping up again. And maybe some of it was with rental properties. But I mean, living off 18, 19, 20% credit card debt is not a recipe for success. Um, and I would also say that, you know, with the Burr strategy that a lot of people, you know, buy or renovate, um, rent out, rehab, renovate, repeat, is is just about trying to get that first property. Mm-hmm. So if if uh, we as in first-time investors are able to get that $50,000, $70,000 to finally buy that first property and then you're able to renovate it, now the power of the real estate is going to start kicking in. And now every year, every two years, you can refi, take out money for your next down payment, and the chain is finally starting to go. You yeah. know, what would you say f- to that? And no, I, I 100% agree on that. The 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 first one has always got to be the hardest. I'm mostly in the investing space when it comes to money. And we always talk about how the first $100,000 is the hardest $100,000 you're going to make because it mostly comes down to your own savings rate. All, after that, compound interest starts to, to play a factor. You have this like little part-time employee that's also work, working behind the scenes, generating some money for you. If that's through real, real estate income, it's that if that's through stocks and dividends, uh, if that's through some kind of other asset allocation class, all of a sudden your money starts making money. And that's when you're like, whoa, this is cool. Um, but yeah, that first 100,000 or that first down payment that you're saving for is always going to be the toughest. And it really is got to come down to you as an individual and your individual savings rate. Okay. Well, let, let's back up a little bit then. Um, let's like, we started off the conversation by talking about good habits, um, spending. I mean, so what, what would one do as a first step, like look at themselves and kind of what chart out? I I don't know. How do you, how do you, uh, recommend they start? Sure. Yeah. Savings rates really comes down to two things. How much money do you have coming in and how much money do you have going out? And whatever the difference is, is your savings rate. Uh, So I think we could probably approach both sides of the equation. That's how do I make more money and how do I save more of the money that I'm making? Uh, So Garrett, I don't know which one you feel like is more impactful to start with, but, but happy to take it either direction. 
Let's talk about savings because by nature, I'm a spender. Um, <laughs> now I have some, you know, disposable income to go out. I'm a foodie. I love going out, but I also enjoyed doing that in my 20s. And I mean, you know, I think let's talk about sacrifices, right? Mm-hmm. When you finally look at what the, that expense column is. Yeah, I, oh man, I hate to throw out the the big bad bead word, B word, but I really do think it starts with a budget and a budget in some kind of sense. Whatever is going to get you going, I talk about this all of the time because so many people I run into aren't budgeting at all. So you don't have to buy really fancy software or make this overly complex spreadsheet. You just need to figure out what process am I going to continue to follow over and over again to at least wrap my hat, my my hands around my money, uh, and I figure and figure out exactly where is my money going. Um, so I would simply start just by documenting every single one of my transactions. I think this is a really great thing, an easy thing to do for 30 days. So in January, you're listening to this in December. In January, let's just make the commitment right now that throughout the entire month, we're going to write down every transaction that we make. Then at the end of the month. You could categorize those transactions if you wanted, and you could start real getting some real insight into where am I spending my money? And I think this is where the the sacrifice conversation comes in, but you can rank order some of these things. Um, I am not in favor of cost cutting everything out of your life and being absolutely miserable for two years while you're trying to save for your down payment. We have plenty of life ahead of us. We can extend that that period. Maybe it takes us two and a half years versus two years, but we get so much more quality of life out of this. But I've also found whenever people actually start tracking some of the expenses that they're having, they start to realize, wow, I spent $150 on eating out this month. And whenever I'm actually looking at that, most of that was just convenience food. It was fast food or quick dining type things. I don't really get a lot of joy or satisfaction out of that. It's not really bringing any quality of life to me. I can just ruthlessly cut that out, save that $150, make some some meals at home. Um, and and all of a sudden, I just freed up $150 or $150 into my budget. But on the flip side, if they're like, wow, I looked at my the amount that I'm spending on music. I love going to concerts. I couldn't imagine not attending those two concerts in January. That really brought a lot of joy to my life. Well, then leave that in your budget and let that be. There's just, I've found so many other areas that you can cut costs and you don't have to completely overhaul uh, your budget and your spending unless you're just at a huge deficit in terms of what's coming in and what's going out. More times than not, if you pick a couple of battles, two or three in your budget and you start saving an extra two or $300 a month, you're going to make a lot of headway. Yeah, I think what you're speaking about is having a plan. A budget is definitely one of it, a part of that, but where are we going? What is, like I'm a big advocate of choosing a goal and then reverse engineering how to get there. And if your plan is to get that first home, to get married, to you're, you're in your first home and now you want to have an investment property, again, how do we get there? Or that's where we want to go. How do we get there? And what are those steps? And yeah, once you do your budget, it really comes down to me to how bad do I want it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how bad do I want to eat? out knowing that it might be five years before I can afford my first rental property or I cook at home. Um, you know, what would you say about sacrifices and, and people saying, well, I need to live for today, not for tomorrow. And I think that's fair. And I really struggle with this one, especially somebody that that's routinely kind of expressing, uh, habits that lean a little on the frugal side. I do think you need to, to balance your future and your, 
in your current self. And that's a really, really hard thing to do. And you're the only one from a personal standpoint that really understands what that balance is right now. But once again, with a little bit of self-reflection, I, I truly think that you could be living a joyful life and still setting your, your future self up for success. And uh, of course that does come down to sacrifices, but maybe it's just a little more creativity. Like I love going to business conferences. It's one of my favorite things to do. I like to attend a lot of different conferences. FinCon's a very, uh, uh, one near and dear to my heart, which is a personal finance content creator conference. I am on this like amazing streak right now. I think I have seven conferences straight that I haven't paid for my ticket. And you know, conferences can be expensive, like wow. 300, 500, sometimes $1,000 for a conference ticket. And it's not because I've weaseled my way in. As I've just gotten very creative and crafty with potentially getting free tickets. So a lot of conferences will have first-time attendee scholarships that all you have to do is simply sit down for 20 minutes, fill out an application, answer a few questions for them, uh, and uh, they'll give you a free ticket. Others, I've gotten free tickets through vendors. I've asked my vendor if they want to sponsor me. And I've also been a speaker. Um, all the mm -hmm. speakers usually get free conference tickets as well. So now it's just a hunt for me to, to try to, how do I get this free ticket to this conference that I'm going to? And that alone has saved me a couple of thousand dollars over the last two years. Yeah, uh, the brilliant. Because now you still get to do what you want to do, but you're doing it on a budget. Um, yeah. I love that. Okay, so let's... Um, Let's say that we put a checkbox there. We have looked at our budget. Uh, we've cut out what we can. Now we've got maybe an extra thousand, two, three thousand dollars, but it's still not quite enough. What are the other strategies? Because that's cutting off the expense column. How do we bring in more? Yeah, I, I think this is the more fun side to talk about, to be honest. You can only reduce your expenses so much. But if you look about if you look at how much money can I make, I mean you have an endless possibility there. You can truly make as much money as you as you really want in your life. Um, but there's you got to pay for food and shelter and all these things. You can only bottom out your expenses as far as you can. Um, so I love talking more about how do I how can you make more money versus how can you stop stop spending so much of your money. And I think first and foremost, it really comes down to your primary source of income. It's fun to talk about side hustles. And I really hope we get to talk about side hustles because it's been a passion of mine over the last 18 months. But if you want to make a big impact right away, I would look at your primary source of income. And for so many of the listeners, I've heard that it's aspiring entrepreneurs that are working day jobs right now. So W-2 earners or, or day job earners, you have a consistent paycheck. The number one thing I would suggest that you do if you want to increase your income is ask for a raise. <laughs> like, it seems like a really obvious one that's out there. And I know a lot of people are thinking about it, but like, realistically, if you want to make an impact, you can go and, and start side hustling or, or start a business or something, but that's going to take some time to ramp up and get going. If you're making you know, $70,000 and you go ahead and negotiate a 15 or 20% raise right off the get-go, I mean, all of a sudden you're up another seven to $15,000. Like that's major money right from, right from the start. And you didn't have to get into learning a side hustle, doing all that stuff, which we will get to. That's on my plan of questions to ask <laughs> you. So I think you just piqued the interest of every listener who's working right now going, okay, how do I ask for a raise? I've been in the same job for five, seven, 10 years. I don't like, I wouldn't even know. So 
<laughs> enlighten us. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. This is a fun one. And this is always one of the most listened to episodes whenever I cover this. I like to cover this at least once or twice a year because I think it's really important. Uh, there are a couple of different strategies, but my personal favorite, especially if you have a little bit of runway to work with, goes as followed. So if I were to ask for a raise, I would I would go to my my boss, my manager. And let's just assume you're my manager. So I'd say, hey, Garrett, I really want to talk about performance. I want to become a top performer at this company. What would that look like over the next three months if if I were to really be a top performer? And Garrett, how would you respond to that? I would say, well, uh, you're doing pretty good right now. What do you have in mind? <laughs> nice. You're smarter than most managers. Most managers <laughs> will be like, okay, I like this idea. Here, they might fumble through an idea or two, like, oh, I really want you to to work on this or get this going. And and like I said, they'll usually give you one one concrete thing. The thing that you're going to do is come with three really concrete initiatives that you want to work on over the next three months that you feel like are going to make a major impact on you. So I might say, hey, Garrett, thanks uh, you know, thanks for allowing me to, to talk about this. I really think a blind spot that we have or something that our team's currently struggling with is that we don't have a standard operating procedure for our billing process. I would really like to take charge of that and be, uh, be spearheading that idea. What do you, like, do you think like that's an important initiative in our team? And you'd have this conversation, you would dial out your three initiatives and and kind of knock that out. And then at the end of the conversation, I'd say, hey, Garrett, do you mind uh, just as an update and to keep me on track if I just send you an email every other week, just giving you a status update on uh, how these three initiatives are going? I'm guessing you're probably going to respond and say- Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So every other Friday, I follow up, up with you and I let you know, hey- Garrett, uh, just a status update. So I've been working on the billing um, standard operating procedure. I draft, I made the first draft and I sent it over the bill. He's currently reviewing it and adding his two cents in. I'll let you know uh, what progress I make uh, in two more weeks. And you're going to continue to do that over this three three week or three month period. And then as you're closing in on that period, you're starting to check off some of these initiatives. You're making a lot of headway. I would set up a conversation with you again and say, Hey, Garrett, I want to talk about how performance is going. And uh, I also want to talk about pay. Would you have availability this Friday to sit down and, and have a conversation? And we would sit down, we'd have that conversation. We would talk about all the great things that I've accomplished over the three months. I'd, you know, We already pre-agreed that these three initiatives would really highlight me as a top performer and would really return so, some ROI from our team. So the conversation's going great. And then I lay it on you. Hey, Garrett, I really uh, want to make some additional income. I want to do it here. I really love working for you and your company. What do you think about me getting a raise? And you've just float that out there. And the biggest piece of advice I can tell you to do at this point in time is shut up. <laughs> shut up. Yeah. Too many people t- keep talking or, or kind of spin in circles whenever they lay out this question. Just let your manager come back to you and, and kind of give you a sense of what's on their mind. And they might say multiple things. They might say, hey, man, I've loved what you've been doing over the last uh, couple of months. I really do think you deserve a raise. Or maybe it's, hey, I can't get you a raise right now. We're going to have to wait until the annual um, the annual cycle, and then I can go advocate for a raise. Or maybe there's some other kind of feedback that they give you, and you can you can hash that out and kind of talk a little bit more about that. But hopefully at the end of the conversation, you got to a place where you know you're getting a raise or you know when you're going to get a raise. Love it. Okay. Um, lots of takeaway there because basically I think the majority of people, me included, would have just walked into the manager's office and said, Hey, I've been here for a while, four, five, six years. It's been a while since I got a raise, cost of living, whatever, you know, people say. 
So can I have a raise? They just come out and ask. What you're saying is prove or find out what the company needs, go ahead and do that, and then come back after and say, hey, I've already proven to you I deserve this. Is it in the budget? It's a yeah. lot easier conversation. It's, it's hope, hopefully it's a slam dunk conversation and there's nothing wrong with, with approaching the conversation the way you approached it. Honestly, I think the hardest thing to do and the whole asking for a raise cycle is actually asking for it. So if you don't want to go through the whole three month proving process and really set yourself up for success here, and you simply want to go in and, and make the ask right away because you do feel like you, you're, you deserve it. Good for you. But what I found through talking with most people, getting the confidence and going up and making the ask is usually the hardest aspect of all of this. So I do feel like demonstrating your value and showcasing why you're worth more in the future versus why you're not worth as much right now is an important aspect because I've, I've hired people, I've managed people, I've done it all. And the, the response I usually get with some of this, I, I mean, sometimes it's the cost of living conversation, which is uh, of course really relevant over the last few years with, with what inflation has gotten. But also, what's in the back of my head is, how are you worth more now than what you're worth whenever I hired you? Whenever I hired you to do all these tasks that you're already currently doing, what have you done above and beyond that? And a lot of times, if you're being really honest and realistic with yourself, sometimes, I don't know, you might not be a top performer or somebody that's going above and beyond. So I think the, the easiest way to get a yes whenever you ask for a raise is to demonstrate that you are a top performer and just be a top performer. <laughs> Did you know that there is a big difference between investing in real estate and becoming a real estate investor? People become real estate investors all the time. They get into a flip or conversion project or even dealing with long-term tenants. And they come back to us to tell us the same thing. It's like having another full-time job. I don't know about you, but that's not what we call investing. Investing in real estate is about having your money work for you in a way that is passive, consistent, most importantly, hands off. So which one are you? Do you want to be a real estate investor or do you want to invest in real estate? For those that are open to investing in real estate and having your money work for you, listen up. Garrett Wong has spent decades helping thousands of property owners navigate the ins and outs of property investing and management through his award-winning company, Upper Edge Property Management. Their new division, Upper Edge Capital, is currently involved in multiple projects, from single-family flips to multifamily development. Are you looking for a healthy return on your invested capital, or perhaps becoming a joint venture partner? If so, go to www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest to book a time to speak with Garrett and his team to see if there is a fit. Once again, the link is www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest. Now, back to the show. I love it. Yeah, when you think of the context of, again, we just had a budgeting conversation, right? To try to get $150, $200, $250 out of your budget to start saving, and yet you can negotiate a ten dollars or $12,000 a year raise. That's 1000 bucks a month. And you're basically doing the same job that you had before. So uh, I love that. Um, are there any other strategies other than the three month, um, three month ask that you would advocate? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think there are micro strategies within that. I feel like the biggest thing that I want to reiterate throughout this whole process is a demonstrate your value and b be in clear communication with your manager. The reason I like sending biweekly 
um, status updates is I have a paper trail and I'm reminding you, it's not this three months later, I'm coming in with this conversation and I'm like, Hey, remember that conversation that we had back last summer, whenever we decided what would be a top performer? No, I'm consistently reminding you every other week of what we agreed upon. And I'm giving you updates, small kind of milestones throughout the process that really does demonstrate that, Hey, we agreed on what this would, what these projects would be. And this is actually how I'm fulfilling those promises. Love it. Okay. So we budgeted, we have successfully negotiated a raise. Talk to me about side hustles. Yes. <laughs> yes. I love side hustles. Uh, and I've only recently become in love with, with side hustling. So I, I do all the things that I previously stated. I am monster, monster frugal for, for where, where I feel like I am in my current path right now. I am consistently asking for a raise at work and demonstrating that I'm a top performer. But it wasn't until recently that I realized I could make money outside of my nine to five as well. And that's where this concept of side hustles came. Uh, I've also st started a, a business over the last uh, year and a half as well. So that's been exciting. But I want to talk about like a true side hustle as something that I think you can start today uh, because it truly did start just like that. So um, kind of the long story here, my brother moved to Austin, Texas, where I'm currently living. He subleased my room from, he subleased a room in my apartment from my roommate. She was going out of town. She was going out, uh, doing some guiding over the summer and, and needed to sublease her room. My brother and I, we want, we like pizza. We wanted to try a bunch of pizza places, but he's still getting by. He just, uh, quit his job in order to move to Austin. So he didn't have a lot of disposable income. And I said, Hey, Kyle, like, let's just make a little extra money and put it into a pot. We'll call it our pizza fund. And inevitably that came up, well, how are we going to make that money? And we were living in an apartment complex and in our apartment complex, we had a central like dumpster spot and people would all the time would just bring up their, they were moving out, quickly moving out and they would bring like their desk and they drop their desk in front of the dumpster. And if anybody needed, uh, needed that before trash day came, people can grab it and bring it back to their place. Well, Kyle and I, we got this grand idea why don't we grab those things? A lot of times they need to be cleaned up, maybe repainted, rescrewed, uh, wiped down, things like that. We're, we're just going to go grab some of these things. We're going to take some pictures. We're going to clean them up and we're going to list it on Facebook Marketplace. So we started doing that. Okay. And the first few months, uh, we made about a hundred bucks and it was great. We got to go out to eat once or twice a month, uh, try a new pizza joint in, in Austin. We were checking off all of these. We'd get a recommendation from someone. We would make enough money. We'd fill our, our pot. It hit a hundred bucks. We'd go out. We'd try a new pizza spot. And then it just kind of took off. Uh, we, we moved to a different place. So we kind of had a new strategy in mind. So uh, Kyle, he went out and sourced some tables and chairs. Uh, think about like a wholesaler of Ikea. Uh, he found a wholesaler from Ikea. Table, uh, source some tables and chairs. He would get the, the parts sent to him and he would assemble, pre-assemble tables and chairs and then sell these on through Facebook Marketplace too. And it was a win-win for everybody. Uh, people love to not have to put together furniture, especially Ikea-type furniture where it'd take like hours. He um, put a little bit of manual labor in and he would he would get to make some money too. And it's taken off. We uh, we track it on a spreadsheet, of course, because we're we're math nerds. And uh, year to date, and we're talking at the beginning of December right now, we've made over $12,000, which is craziness. Wow. <laughs> so we're netting over $1,000 a month right now. It really just started out us picking up some, uh, some, some people, some things, some, some really useful items that people didn't want anymore. They just dumped them out and we cleaned it up. And then all of a sudden we found a product at an affordable cost and, and kind of learned the, the avenues of Facebook marketplace. 
Okay, so you said you just recently also started a business, but you kind of defined a side hustle as something completely separate. How do you delineate those two in your mind? Uh, oh, that's a good question. I feel like with our business, I'm investing in our business. It's really kind of my future, my baby. Like I, it, I'm building it in the sense of like, at some point in time, it's, I'm no longer one for one in terms of the time that I'm putting in and the output that I'm getting. My side hustle more so is a more one-to-one. I, we can make as, it's just about as much as, as effort that we want to put into it. So we can go ahead, we can go out to the garage, we can build a couple more tables, we can get those listed. They'll sell, we'll make 50 bucks uh, on each of those tables or however much it is. And, and we're kind of trading our time for dollars. My, my business, I'm really thinking about and scaling it and growing it and operationalize, operationalizing it in the sense of like, we're handing this off to employees. Now those employees are starting to make us money. I see. Yeah, definitely with the business. And I know this more than anybody, you're not always going to make money for a while, right? I think, say the average business takes two to three years before you even start to break even. So that's a great point. Would you define a part-time job as a side hustle? I think you could. Um, I think a lot of side hustles, and I I did an episode all about uh, side hustles. I think something like uh, Uber or driving for Lyft or something like that could be defined as a side hustle. Maybe something... I don't know how to make the delineation. In my mind, I'm thinking a job or is kind of aligned with my career path, while side hustle is just something that I'm kind of doing off the side of my job with some extra free time just to make some additional money. Like, I promise you, I really don't want to turn into a furniture wholesaler. That is not <laughs> my dream job. That's not what I want to do. It makes some money for us. Now we can eat endless amounts of pizza every single month um, through this side hustle. But at some point in time, I'm going to want to let this go because the time is going to become more valuable than than the money that it's generating. Yeah, no, uh, great points. Because if you're able to free up $1,500, $2,000 out of your budget, uh, another $1,000 in a side hustle, maybe $1,500 on a part-time job that you're in a couple days a week, maybe even driving, right? So you can you know, listen to music or whatever it might be. I don't want to imply that driving for Lyft or Uber is, is easy, but I mean, what are we at there? Uh, $3,500, $4,000? I mean, times 12, what are we at? That's already 50 grand. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, that's one year. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm telling you. Like, I think it's scary whenever you start doing the numbers on like a down payment, especially where housing rates or housing prices have been going over the last decade or so. And you're like, whoa, like all of a sudden it's not 20 or 30 grand that I need to save for a down payment, but it's 50, 75, $100,000 that I need to save for a down payment. Like uh, I might as well kick that dream to the curb because I'm never going to be able to do that. But whenever you start thinking about it in this context of both sides of the equation, how can I reduce cost? How can I increase my primary source of income? How can I make some additional income through side hustles? All of a sudden, it kind of starts to become a reality. Maybe I put my head down for two or three years and I save enough to actually get that first down payment. And then uh, through a lot of the wisdom that you share on this podcast, all of a sudden we can, that money can start generating some additional real estate opportunities and it can snowball on itself. Absolutely. Again, we're only advocating the sacrifice to try to get that first one because that's really the, you know, trying to get that going and then the rest can all flow downhill, right? Um, So when somebody is finally starting to get this kind of money and it's, I mean, should it be sitting in their bank account? Where do you advocate to kind of park that while they're saving? 
I think the best and easiest place to park it is what's called a high yield savings account. These are savings accounts. They function just like everyday savings accounts, but what makes them different is that they're typically generating sometimes five, 50, 500 times the amount of interest that your maybe brick and mortar or national bank savings accounts are going to generate for you. So right now, um, for example, I, I, my high yield savings accounts with a company called Fidelity and the interest rates that they're, they're providing right now are 5%. So you're getting a 5% interest rate on money that's sitting parked there, uh, which is great. I mean, that's, that's, craziness. And I was actually looking at my budget and this is a funny story. I was looking at my, my budget, looking at my income and I have a little bit of money parked in my fidelity account. I just set it up and and wanted to get in the flow of having a high yield savings account. And then I have my, my other savings account with a longstanding, uh, large banking institution that provides nothing next to nothing. And I was like adding up the numbers. Uh, the big financial institution has five times the amount of money in that savings account versus my fidelity account. Year to date, my Fidelity account generated me uh, $30 in interest, which is nothing to run home about, but I don't have a ton of money in that account. And I was like, wow, it generated me 30. You know, realistically, my other account should generate me about $150. I looked at it. Do you have any guess on how much was in that account? I can't, no. Six cents. It generated oh, wow. me six cents. <laughs> they, they were peeling off one to two pennies a quarter in interest. I'm like, I don't even know why my money is sitting here. It, it is essentially losing money because inflation is rising and it's not even keeping up with inflation. Um, so I'm a big advocate of high yield savings accounts. There's so many that are out there. Don't get overwhelmed by this. Just simply Google high yield savings accounts. You'll see all the options that are available to you. Fidelity is one that I like. Ally Bank is a very popular one as well. And these are typically online banks. So you might still need to have another banking institution where you have ATM access, uh, lines of credit, things like that. But this is a great place to go and park your money, especially if you're going to have $25,000, dollars $100,000 sitting in an account. Well, and one thing I want to discuss and something that's been really helpful for me is temptation, right? Because, I mean, again, I, I admit it. My wife knows this. I'm a spender. I love I love researching and buying nice things. And if you're saving for that down payment and you've been living paycheck to paycheck and in your checking account, let's say that you make the mistake of, of having everything mixed together, you've just saved $10,000. How tempting is it to, to spend that? So one thing that I've always done is open up another bank account or like you're talking high yield, high yield savings account and make it really difficult to access that money, right? I even have gone to as far as um, I have uh, a business savings account uh, where I take all of the profit from my business. And when I signed up, they're like, okay, here's your ATM card. Here's your online banking. I'm like, no, 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 I don't want that. They're like, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, it's going to sound silly. Give me a bank book and nothing else. Yeah, but sir, you're going to have to drive to the branch when you want money. I said, perfect. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, what would you say to that, to uh, forbidden fruit and trying to keep it away from your, out of your mind? I think that's an amazing strategy and an amazing idea. That's one of the, the, I think, ancillary benefits of having a high yield savings account kind of separate from your whole other banking system, checking account that you have. I would go as, as far as to just set up automatic withdrawals from your checking account into your high yield savings account. Just go ahead. If you know you need to be saving you know, $2,000 a month into that account, go ahead, set up that automatic transfer. 
your paycheck hits on the first, the automatic transfer goes out on the second, that $2,000 goes into your high yield savings account. You give your password to your, your, your parents or your spouse or whoever, a trusted individual, and you say, hey, only give this to me if I really, really have a good <laughs> excuse of why I need this. If not, you're just sitting, that, sitting there and that money's parking and making you a little bit of money as you're continuing to save up for your down payment. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I mean, something even putting into different vehicles with the financial planner where you need three days before the money hits your account, right? Mm -hmm. I call that the cooling off period because <laughs> if you have to wait for three days, maybe do you really need it, right? So it kind of curbs that impulse spending. Um, yeah, one, one other piece of advice that I would give for our listeners is I know they call it like the envelope method or jars or different things like that. But I mean, with a credit union, at least here in Canada, you don't get charged for multiple bank accounts. Hmm. And so when we were doing our budgeting, because there's so many different things we spend, we will actually match our budget with separate bank accounts, right? So the idea for me is we have, let's say, 100 bucks in our checking account, and that's connected to my, my, my debit card, my ATM card. And then you know, I know that we spend a hundred bucks a month on dog food. So I will take that one account, call it dog food. I'll divide a hundred dollars by, you know, 12 or 26 or whatever, however you're getting paid. And that's how much comes off of my paycheck each month through an auto transfer, which goes into my main account. And hey, all of a sudden I need to buy dog food. I just do a transfer while I'm standing in the store put it into my debit card, and then I pay for it, and then it's done. And we do that with our phones, our internet, uh, utility bills, and even things like travel, right? And dining, right? So when that when that bank account is gone, it's gone. And then you you really know, okay, I really don't have the money to spend on this. I have to stop. I I like that. Uh, the cash envelope system, if, if anybody's looking for, for that methodology, I think it's a good one to go out and and do some research on. And I love some of the online banks that allow you to set up multiple um, accounts and name those accounts. I don't do it for my expense categories, but I do do it for savings goals. Like maybe I have a big vacation that I'm trying to save for, or maybe it's the down payment for my house. I'll go and set up each of those buckets as, as savings goals. And I, I really enjoy kind of watching those accounts grow and creating those automatic transfers. Anytime that you can take the decision-making process out of your hands, and into an automated system, I think it's a really, really great idea. So I love that system. Okay, well, perfect. Um, so let's, uh, let's get back to your experience. What are some of the common mistakes people make when they're trying to save for a down payment and how can they avoid them? Maybe a follow-up on the where you park your money conversation. One thing that I want you to be weary of is having this large nest egg of a down payment savings and thinking, maybe I should invest that in the stock market. And <laughs> if you're not sure what you want to do with your down payment, maybe you are thinking about buying a house, but maybe you're not, maybe we can allocate a little bit of this to the stock market. But if, if you really truly have a plan, you want to buy a home, you want to buy that real estate property in two years, I would highly advise you not to be putting that money into something as volatile as the stock market. Because the last thing you want to do is save up the 50 grand over the course of the two years. And then the stock market has two negative years back to back. And you look in that account and all of a sudden you saved up the 50, but there's only $42,000 in that account because you made a, because the market uh, was 
uh, went through a reverse period. That is defeating and and not helpful whatsoever. And I I know there's some opportunity cost, and maybe you miss out on a, a gangbuster um, stock stock market run. But that's why you have money in retirement accounts. You're investing through through your employer sponsored environment uh, retirement accounts or your individual retirement accounts. That's not for your savings goals, like your down payment. I love that. No, for sure. One thing that uh, I want to talk about too, and maybe this goes to your podcast, is the struggle. Like, you know, saving for a big financial goal, like a down payment, like it's draining mentally and emotionally. How do you suggest people stay motivated and focused and not give up? You got to celebrate. And you got to celebrate a lot. I think this with any anything financially, I love to put little wins throughout my entire goal process. So if I'm saving a down payment for $50,000. It's going to take me two years. I'm going to go ahead and every $5,000, every $10,000 that I save up, I'm going to have a milestone celebration. And I would go as as far as like, you know, every 10,000, maybe there's this like thing that I do. So the first 10,000, I'm going to treat myself to this restaurant that I've really been wanting to go to for a long long time. Maybe the second milestone, uh, I'm going to do the weekend vacation that my girlfriend keeps asking me to do, but I've had my head down because I've been trying to save the best I can. I'd go ahead and give myself the little rewards, the drip rewards while I hit, hit each one of those milestones, reward yourself. And then once again, have some fun while you're doing it too. Like it's so much fun to save this money and to be making progress towards your goals. Uh, and also you want to celebrate as you are actually going through the journey itself. Oh, that's wonderful. And I mean, think of mentally how, how confident you feel when you look at your bank account and you have 10, 20, $30,000 in there and sure, absolutely celebrate. I, I love that. Mm-hmm. It's it's cool and it's fun. I'm really big into financial independence. Um, I'm sure you've heard of of the fire movement. I caught wind of that uh, maybe five five or six years ago, and it was a grind early on. I started tracking my net worth, uh, and all of a sudden it's like ten thousand, twenty thousand. You hit these like little milestones, and you get really excited about those. And and I told you the power of compound interest. Once you you know crest over the hundred thousand dollar mark, and all of a sudden you're you know the stock market like last month the S and P was up eight and a half percent. I was excited to, to look at my accounts at the end of the month and, and update my net worth tracker. Um, I'm not going to lie there, but those are kind of the fun, exciting moments throughout this whole journey. And, and those are the cool things. And you want to celebrate and look back on some of that stuff. No, for sure. Well, um, as a final piece of advice, cause we're, I can't believe how fast this time <laughs> has gone, but as a final piece of advice, what would you say is the most important thing to keep in mind for anyone looking to save enough for that first rental property down payment? Man, I don't know if I have any more, uh, um, outstanding advice, maybe just reiterating my last point that, that celebrate each, each of the milestones. And if you do have a setback, Maybe all of a sudden there was a unexpected emergency. Your 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 car pittered out, and you had to pause your savings goals for two two months while you saved enough for in order to get a new car, or you had a medical emergency or something like that. Give yourself the grace um, and allow yourself the flexibility to move your plan, knowing that you can't you can't predict and plan all the things that are going to happen to you throughout your life. Love it. Okay, so I. I'm not going to stop right now because I ask every guest this question. So uh, I do want to hear what you have to say. Uh, So here it is. This is the Investing to Win podcast. How do you define success and what does winning look like for you? Me personally, it's time freedom. 
the the reason that I'm really big into the fire movement and financial independence and saving all of this money is to win back my time. I really don't want to be grinding in a nine to five or even running a business my entire life. I really want to to allow money to slide down the scale of importance. It's no longer the number one or number two factor whenever I'm making decisions, but maybe number eight or number nine or number 10. And I want my time freedom to be near the top. I want to be able to choose exactly what I'm doing with my time each and every day because it's the most precious resource that we all have. Well said. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. Um, Thanks again for reaching out and thanks again for being a guest on the podcast. Uh, Yeah, really informative. I'm sure this is going to get a lot of likes and downloads. (laughs) Garrett, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm so excited to, to be on your show and I think we had a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed the episode today on the Investing to Win podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on whichever platform you are listening to this on. If this episode made you think of another investor, take a screenshot and share this podcast episode with them. Investing to win is not only about helping you to win more, but win actually stands for Wise Investors Network. It's where we help our investors build a hands-off portfolio and have passive investments work for them. To see how you can potentially partner with us, go to www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest to learn more. Once again, the link is www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest. All links can be found in the description below. Until next time.